I said be happy with what you got. You be happy. Me, I want what's coming to me. Oh, well, what's coming to you, Tony? The world, Chico. And everything in it. What I try to tell you, this country, you gotta make the money first. Then when you get the money, you get the power. Then when you get the power, then you get the woman. That's why you gotta make your own moves. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Lesson number one. Don't underestimate the other guy's greed. <laughs> the following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Remember I told you when you started, the guys who last in this business, the guys who fly straight, low-key, quiet. But the guys who want it all. As part of our throwback series, today we'll be looking at Scarface 1983, starring Al Pacino, Michelle Pfeiffer, Stephen Bauer, Robert Loggia, and Mary Elizabeth Mastriantonio, directed by Brian De Palma. Told you a long time ago, you fucking little monkey, not to fuck me! Brother, do you want to go to war? Come on, do you want to go to war? We we'll take you to war, okay? Do you want to play rough? Okay. Say hello to my little friend. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. It's Gally in Glasgow. And F. Murray Abraham. It's Devlin, I'm in London. We're here to talk about Scarface. Yes, Scarface. I've got to say, this one I'd seen many, many times as a youngster, which is probably not ideal, considering the violence, the language, and everything else that goes with it. I kind of left it alone. And then all of a sudden, in 2002, yep. a game came out called GTA Vice City. You ever play it? Uh, a couple of times. I'm not hugely into computer games, as you know. But yes, I have played it. I, I was never as wrapped up in it as virtually every other teenage boy. I got it at Christmas, uh, 2002. Loved it. The music, the aesthetic, everything about it. Great game. And then that kind of brought my focus back into... Scarface, and I believe that that was probably the last time I'd seen it. I actually, I couldn't remember much about the film uh, coming back to it again. But what about you? As I said last time out, uh, I, I didn't believe that I'd ever seen the whole film. Uh, it turns out I'd, I'd seen basically the scenes that people have seen. The big moments, the the which largely happened towards the end of the film. So the early stages of the film were, were completely alien to me. It ended up being quite a different viewing experience than than what i'd come to expect because my mental image of uh scarface was entirely based around the like you say that the gta vice city thing and, and and the all of those grand theft auto games were 
always being called in to the public sphere as, as being a terrible influence on, on young people because they were just unbridled violence and that they were, they were very callous and Scarface's is super famous and popular amongst like 90s hip hop aficionados. Yeah, it was it was strange, right? So in the in the I think it was like Nas and a, there's a rapper as well called Scarface. But I think Nas did an album where he referred to Scarface. Jay-Z did a music video with Mariah Carey, uh, Heartbreaker where he references the bathtub in in the Tony's mansion. It's strange how they just appropriated Scarface as this is the film. I mean, what are your thoughts on it? I was aware of it because um, as a misguided, culturally confused teenager in Darlington, I got (laughs) well into the Wu-Tang Clan in the late 90s. Great choice. Which, you know, yeah, I I agree. I mean, was it a great idea to to wear a a Wu-Wear hockey jersey (laughs) that was nine sizes too big for me around the streets of, of County Durham? Probably not. Looked like a moron. So it's it's an interesting one. Also, um, I mean, it's been parodied to now. Like, um, if you remember the Kirby Enthusiasm episode where where he befriends Crazy Eyes Killer, yeah, and he says that he's he's gonna have a TV <laughs> on the ceiling in his bedroom playing Scarface twenty four seven, just after boasting about how he decided to have four steps in his house because it was better than three. I think what it was was in the nineties when hip hop really became a big big thing. Obviously, most hip hop artists, uh, P Diddy, P Diddy excluded, uh, were kind of people that had come from from the gutter, from nowhere, and then all of a sudden were making loads of money. Pop, most popular thing in Western culture, and I think they relate to the story of Tony Montana coming from nowhere and then rising yep. to the top. Maybe they're missing the satire. I don't know. Things that are becoming quite prominent now is, is talking about representation in media, and there's there's a lot of weird racial coding in this in this film. Yes, including the cast. Um, you baffling. <laughs> so, uh, so, um, so that that was a, a strange one. In that, I remember reading uh, an article, and you never know how how seriously to take these things because the people that write the articles are people who are paid to overthink things, which is great. I like it. But you always wonder how much it actually relates to most people's viewing experience. Most people don't put five layers of of thought processes behind how they uh, how they react to something. They just react. Yeah, to absolutely. It. If absolutely. mainstream cinema is only going to show you villains that you can relate to, then you relate to the villains, and not the not the villainous behaviors. You take what you what you can or what you want from the characters that you're given. Yeah, I, th- hmm. I think the parallels are quite clear, though, between uh, Tony Montana's character and the the rappers that were coming out in the early 90s. They're not part of the establishment. They're independently successful, and they're hugely ambitious. And, and I think that's all embodied in The World Is Yours. Would you give us a quick synopsis of the film? In May 1980, a Cuban man named Tony Montana, played by Al Pacino, claims asylum in Florida and is in search of the American dream. Unable to convince immigration, he is not a criminal. Tony and his best friend, Manny, played by Stephen Bauer, are detained in Freedom Town. They kill an influential Cuban politician for a gangster named Frank, played by Robert Logier. Oh, what a legend. In exchange for release and a green card. Whilst working in a sandwich truck, Tony and Manny are offered another job by Omar to do a drug deal with some Colombians for cocaine. 
or as it's also known, Yeo. Excellent. The deal with the Koyamuns goes wrong and Tony's friend is hacked up with a chainsaw. Tony manages to retrieve the money and the Yeo and insists on meeting Frank. Tony and Manny meet Frank and his beautiful girlfriend, Alvira, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, as they are recruited into the drug world. Three months later, Tony has worked his way up the organisation and is now a trusted member. Tony visits his mother and younger sister, Gina, played by Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, and warns Manny not to go near Gina. Tony and Omar are in Bolivia, negotiating a deal with a powerful drug lord named Sosa. Omar is killed, accused of being an informant, and Tony makes the deal with Sosa, despite Frank not knowing. Tony dismisses Frank's warnings about Sosa and explains that those who are greedy in this business, they don't last. Tony immediately makes a proposition to Alvira, stating he wants to marry her. Frank then tries to have Tony assassinated, but Tony survives and then goes and kills Frank and takes Alvira with him. Tony's deal with Sosa makes him fortunes, and we see him build his empire, marry Alvira, and buy Gina a hair salon. But when he is caught laundering money by the police, Tony is forced to help Sosa kill her, an influential Bolivian journalist who is drawing media attention to Sosa and his colleagues. Sosa's assassin has planted a remote bomb in the journalist's car, but when Tony sees a woman and child climb into the vehicle, he kills the assassin before it can detonate. Sosa declares war on Tony for fucking him over the failed assassination. Meanwhile, Gina and Manny have gone missing. Tony finds the address where Gina has been staying from his mother and goes to the house. Manny and Gina have got married. Manny answers the door and Tony kills him and takes Gina back with him to his mansion. Sosa has dispatched a kill squad to Tony's mansion. They proceed to kill all of Tony's men until he's the only one left. Despite showing them his little friend, Tony is shot in the back, falling into a pool of water. The camera pans up and we see the sign, the world is yours. That's very thorough. I like it. We're gonna, I'm just going to draw something that I didn't mention uh, before we went through the plot. Essentially a remake of Howard Hawks, 1932, I think it was, Scarface. An adaptation, uh, a, a reworking. Was It's interesting in, in the era, because we're looking at 1983 here, um, which is one year after John Carpenter reworked Howard Hawks' The Thing from Another World into The Thing. And what are we talking? One, maybe two years before Cronenberg reworked The Fly into The Fly. I want to talk a little bit about De Palma because I think he's a he's an interesting choice uh, for this type of film, uh, and at this point in his career as well. So he's for for those that don't really know who Brian De Palma is, he kind of came up with a bunch of directors from the seventies and eighties that made made probably some of the most important. Uh, films certainly of our generation and maybe the generation beforehand Spielberg, Lucas Francis Ford Coppola Martin yeah. Scorsese, they were all friends, they all came up at the, about the same time uh, Spielberg and De Palma were really really close so much so that Spielberg directed a couple of shots in this film and we'll, we'll point them out later on but I always thought that De Palma was the more voyeuristic and the slightly he's, he's more willing to go for a controversial subject matter, whereas you know, Scorsese, yes, and Coppola, yes, but certainly Lucas and Spielberg tend to be more of your popcorn directors. And De Palma's always been slightly outside of outside of that sort of Hollywood machine. He's more famous for violence, and he's got a bit of a reputation as well because he 
he takes a lot from Hitchcock. Yeah. But he also took some of the nas- the bad side of Hitchcock as far as his treatment of women and being accused of being a misogynist, uh, which I think is unfair. Uh, I'm talking about a film called Dress to Kill, which was just the film before this, uh, before he did Scarface with Michael Caine as a uh, cross-dressing killer. And then a film that he does a year later after this, which was completely uh, lambasted by the critics, called Body Double. It's a hard, violent, visceral film. That's what he's famous for. But here he is doing a gangster film, which is interesting because, like I said, he's friends with Francis Ford Coppola. And one of the things that I know uh, in interviews and he's talked about is that he wanted to make a gangster film completely far removed from probably the most famous gangster film, which is The Godfather. And he definitely makes a completely different film to The Godfather. This is this is very true. I mean, to go back to your point about um, accusations of uh, misogyny and and whatnot, and um, I get that what you're saying that the the films that he makes kind of rely on those tropes. I guess that that tends to be a bit self-selecting, though. Like that he did choose to make those films yeah he, he chose to make them but i think he's just he's interested in in, in slightly oh, yeah, more yeah. unconventional themes and characters and i don't think there's anything wrong with that but it has probably affected his career i'm yeah. not sure out of the group of directors that i just mentioned that he all came up with that the palmer's name is, mm. is is at the top he's probably the one with the less cachet out of all the directors that i mentioned yeah those those guys are all brands they're all brands unto themselves yeah big time yeah they are no, absolutely. Um, even if the shine has come off most of them by now, there's really only Spielberg that's still trucking ahead. And even then... Well, no one went to see BFG. So this is this is uh, De Palma's anti-Godfather. Um, Godfather being um, Coppola's very weighty, literate, kind of classy, and very classicist, and very formal exploration of the internal workings of a, of a mafia family uh, and the the seduction of a character that starts out as a young innocent and is sort of drawn into the the world of organized crime and he does it because of family and loyalty and 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 he ends up by the infamous third film kind of losing everything it's interesting that you mentioned about structure and formality what what else is in the godfather is a sense of of ethics, of a code of practice. Yep. They don't mind gambling. They don't mind soliciting sex. But drugs is a no-no. And and in this film, I'm not saying there's no ethics in this because there is, but what we see is unbridled chaos as far as the way that the, the gangster organization, there doesn't really seem yep. to be one. And that's one of the reasons why Tony's able to just rise to the top so quickly because there isn't that... Uh, sort of tiered level of hierarchy whereby you know you start off as a capo and then you work up to a, a general and, mm. and that the, it seems more structured in the godfather and in this yeah well he, he jumps in an edit he jumps up the up the food chain and he jumps again when he stops working with you know frank his mentor the guy who's brought him into the business the guy who was giving him a job in one edit and a bit of expositional dialogue from Michelle Pfeiffer, he's now struck out on his own. One of the other differences as well is the violence between the two of them. 
So instead of Godfather, where we've got some oranges spilling on the on the ground, and it's done in a very artistic and almost classy way, in this film, the Palmer puts the violence front and center, and he shows you in a really graphic way. The same with the cinematography as well. Everything's bright. Everything's clear. There's no. There's very little contrast in the whole film. When I talk about contrast, I mean within the light and the way that shadows played within the Godfather series. It's all. It's all dark. Dark rooms, confined spaces. I did notice a couple of times because I. I very very much admired the cinematography in this film the image that you might have from my of miami is that kind of nuclear orange glow that horatio gets to bathe in every week in csi miami this is uh this is a little different it's a little less heavily processed but that that's the sunlight during the day is so bright and everyone's so slick and everyone's got that kind of sheen of sweat on them because it's hot and then the nights you get these sort of crazy psychedelic sunsets every night um there's there's a few moments where um they're very careful to just drop in little hints there's um when you mentioned in the plot synopsis the the moment where tony sort of snaps at manny and tells him to stay away from Gina. The two of them are sitting in the car together, and they're lit from the front of the car, which is where the camera is. And you've got Manny, and he's there, and he's 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 all fully lit. The rest of the set is is quite dark around them. I assume they're just using a part of the car, maybe even the sunshade or something. They're using something as a flag to cut a really hard shadow across uh, Tony's face. So that he sort of, when he's talking, when he's snapping at him, he, he retreats slightly into this darkness. So you just, you only get to see about two thirds of his face. And it's, it's, and he's also got this, this very harsh, but very thin rim light just around him. It's kind of cool. There's a lot of little touches like that in the lighting, which uh, it's not overly stylized in, 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 well, the entire film is stylized ridiculously, but the lighting in these scenes, there's just these little moments every now and then. When you when you need them, it's uh, it's it's those little smart choices that mark this out as the work of a director who's clearly got a handle on everything that's going on screen. Now, absolutely. And in the last episode, we kind of threw pelters at, at Branner for not really having a good visual style, not being able to uh, translate Mary Shelley's Frankenstein's literature and and create a visual story that was engaging. Uh, and I think that's because we were dealing with a stage director. Here, the fundamental difference is that we're dealing with a director who is is a visualist. He, he's a visual director and he knows how to tell a story using visuals. On top of that, he's got an actor in Al Pacino who, at this point in his career, yeah. is doing. He's tran- transitioning to the Hollywood superstar that is Al Pacino. The hoo ha, and uh, and mm. if you do not like. Al Pacino in Heat, you ain't gonna like Al Pacino in Scarface. Uh, I was telling you, um, uh, was it last week or the week before, that um, I'd seen, uh, again, sounds like I've never seen a film. I saw Cruising for the first time ever. I actually saw it in a really strange format, though, which is that uh, a musician had kind of cut Cruising into pieces and was playing it pretty much um, chronologically but was choosing uh, specific scenes to to re-edit and re-score, 
live with like a, a synth score that he'd that he'd either improvised or composed beforehand. But that was the first uh, time I'd ever actually seen any of Cruising, and that to me looked very much like the young kind of swivel-eyed live Pacino of of the of Dog Day Afternoon and The Godfather. He's quite he's a very quiet and thoughtful performer. He's an introvert in The Godfather. He's an extrovert in Scarface. Yeah. There's one there's one scene I'm gonna to point towards, and it wasn't even me that pointed it out. She'll like this. Uh so my girlfriend I didn't realise was a huge fan of Scarface. So when I watched this for the first time last week, uh she was just like quoting all the lines. I was like, Whoa, what's this? Huge fan of Scarface. And she pointed out the huge, huge fan of 90s hip hop. Yeah, but uh, clearly. Uh, well, just like me, you know, I didn't like Wu-Tang Clan. I was more of a public enemy kind of guy, but, you know, whatever. And she pointed out the scene when uh, Tony is with Omar doing the deal with Sosa and how uh, Tony starts eating the lemon as opposed to what it yeah. should be used for, which is to, to clean your hands. And uh, she, and I, there was a little little touches like that that were great, you know, because he's called out for it at the beginning of the film by Omar as he's a fucking peasant and he really is. He's totally uncultured. He's got no real class. Uh, and that, that bit where he's eating the lemon um, just made me chuckle. We'll jump ahead a little bit here, Devlin, but I've got a quick question about the deal with the Colombians. Does Omar know that the Colombians are going to turn on Tony? Cause they set up him as an antagonist to, to Tony straight away when yeah. they're in, they're coming from the sandwich van. Tony refuses to make uh, make the deal for marijuana and is like, Whoa, no, 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 you don't pay 500, 500 for a deal for, for marijuana. And then Omar says, oh, you want to be a big shot? Okay, well, good deal with these Colombians. Yeah. And the guy who's in the car with him, and I made a note of it, uh, kind of just says to him, the, Columbi- the Colombians. And I just think, does Omar know? I, I, I it does, it kept yeah. it, not that it bothered me. I was just interested to know what you thought. It's a good question. I would say uh, it's it's very possible. I also want to take this opportunity to once again just say F Murray Abraham because he's awesome and one of the least Cuban people I've ever seen. Oh, you you know what? We could get into that. Do you want to get into the how this film would not get made in 2018 with this cast? Um, <laughs> We 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 could, um, and as I was saying before, the strange racial coding. So uh, yeah, so let's go through all of our um, either very Italian American or very Jewish uh, Cubans. Well, we have one Cuban though. I think Stephen Bauer is actually Cuban. Is he actually Cuban? I think he is. Yeah. Good for him. I think he is, and I think he was cast because he looks the part. He does. I think he's great in the film. Oh yeah, I, I think he's brilliant. I think as uh, that kind of. Lunk-headed. You know, who he reminds me of is um, from that '70s show. Who's the guy we all hate now? Ashton Kutcher. Back when he used to be kind of charming in that '70s show. Lovable, lovable kind of idiot. Like, yeah, you know, like most of the things he does are terrible. He's uh, constantly just hounding women, but he's just, yeah, he's he's still sort of likable, and he comes across as this somewhat of an innocent. Yeah, he he is, isn't he? And. Even though he does some pretty despicable things, he kills people. Um, I'm, I was, I was, I, yeah, I got emotional when he died. I was like, oh, 
I was, gut- I was gutted that Manny got killed. Well, I was trying to, I was trying to tease out. You know, when you, when we watch these films the the second time, we usually like to make a couple of notes. And I, I had this this note on him, which was that you never see him do coke, which is interesting. He's offered it twice, never takes it. And I had uh, up until a certain point, I was like, I don't think, even though you must know he's a killer because he's the guy who hooks up the job. He's the guy who hooks up the job to kill Rabenga in Freedom Town. So you know that at some point he was and is, and he is a, a, an integral part of this gangster family. You don't see him kill anyone. And then literally as I finished reading, uh, writing that sentence, I remembered that he, she's Frank, so ruined. But the, he is our only Cuban. And uh, it's just interesting how everyone got some fake tan apart from Mary Elizabeth, Master Antonio. She just got some inexplicable hair. Uh, it looked like soul glow. It did. I was trying to imagine what the texture of it would be because it seems very dense. Just let your soul glow. <laughs> it's... Um... It's 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 super confusing. Yeah, it's um, an interesting choice. Yeah. I, she's everyone's good in it though. Yeah, and, uh, not, oh, not yeah. the accents really, um, really. Robert ring, Lo- ring Robert Logia. I, I went through um I went through Robert Logia's uh, IMDb page because obviously there's a couple of people in this film who are those guys from the thing. Uh, Mel the cop. He's definitely one of them. Yeah. He's one. Mel the cop is, of course, um, the judge from Ghostbusters 2. Yep. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Loja. Um, he's in Independence Day. That's where I know him from most. But he's also, he's he's a big staple of David Lynch. But for me, it's it's Independence Day all day long. That's, that's you on. Also, um, that very odd boxing movie, uh, Gladiator. Do you remember oh, that? Oh, God, yeah. Keep good and genial. Yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> yeah and all the old uh all the old pink panther movies as well he's in a lot of yeah. those yeah he was wasn't he and he's 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 great in it he's great mm-hmm. but, but so i don't think um i'm not saying it's right but considering for the time that they wouldn't have just got a load of cubans or there wouldn't have been that yeah. uh that social push to make sure that there was a diverse cast I thought the cast, considering none of them are Cuban, do a really, really good job. And then that is coming from a non-Cuban. So. Well, exactly. That's the problem. You know, that's the problem with uh, whenever anyone kind of argues <laughs> against this. Idea. When, when people like to say, like, you know, like everyone should be allowed to play whatever. Actors should be allowed to play whatever because their job is to create a character. But what happens is that you end up with a whole generation of people who think a Cuban sounds like an Italian-American doing an impression of a Cuban. And that's the problem. It's like how everyone thinks that William Wallace was a blue-eyed Australian with an Irish accent. Seven foot tall and lightning out of his ass. So I've heard. So I've heard. Which, of course, that has now spread to Scotland. If you go to Stirling Castle and go into the gift shop, <laughs> you will find key rings and other paraphernalia with a very mel gibson-esque representation of william wallace so hopefully they haven't quoted all of his best lines like the ones on the police video they have that used to be my key ring when i was a kid well including the one about the jews yes (laughs) (laughs) well we'll move on (laughs) we we spent a long time talking about de palma and being a visual director and i think this scene is great uh Hmm. set up payoff 
and the Colombian scene, there's loads of it. There's also just loads of little treats that you can just get get in get into. Uh, they, it's all, it's fantastic. It's great, um, isn't it? The way that they set up immediately when they're driving in the car and Manny's getting distracted and Tony's like, focus, focus, focus. That obviously plays in later on when he's being distracted by the blonde whilst all the yeah. mayhem's going on in the room. It's just, it's wonderful. But what I wanted to bring attention to was the camera work. Um, uh, De Palma, very influenced by Hitchcock, especially Vertigo. And yeah. Then the way that this scene is shot and it pans across from one section to another, it's wonderful. It's, it ramps yeah, up the tension, and I think it's, it's just great. This was for me. This was the point when I was watching it and realizing that the film I had constructed in my head was not what I was going to get. I was completely enthralled by this. Like it didn't have the the big silly ridiculousness of the montage or the ending this is a different film this is honestly this is the stuff that that drew me in more i I know the ending is um is super famous and and really iconic but um i must admit i just found it mildly exhausting whereas this level of tension this is what like a 10 minute long scene maybe more yeah yeah i know i think it's about I think it is about ten minutes long, but they but they cut they cut between uh, the outside and the inside, and we see the street level with Manny and the radio. But I'm also going to give give massive credit to the sound design. Yes, uh, the way that they they bring in the 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 track from the radio slowly fade in the chainsaw. So he grabs Tony. The deal goes bad immediately. Uh, there's a lovely there's a lovely setup where the woman who looks dodgy straight away is lying yep. on lying on a pillow, and you're immediately on edge thinking that's not right. I love the um, when you say sound design as well. I love that choice of having really nerve wracking tinny siren sound coming from the TV show. There's a police case on some drama, and it's like that siren just keeps piercing at you. And because the score in this is very strange, right? This is an unusual film score. Yeah, we'll talk about the music later on. I've I've got a few. Mm. I'm going to ding the music a little bit because I'm not I'm not mad on the score actually. Okay, well we'll we'll leave that for a sec because they they play most of this scene out with with no music. The vast majority. Sorry, when De Palma's panning uh, back and forth, mm. we don't even see the third guy. He just comes out of nowhere. Just comes out the staircase. Just comes into frame from the right. Enters right with a cut, with a gun. And I just love that. I think it's great. I love that. Um, sorry, that split diopter shot just before that as well. When Tony and the Colombian are inside the room, and they've got that big kind of uh, spacious singles between the two of them, standing, totally standing uh, in front of the bathroom, and the, and the Colombian guy standing at the front door, and they they, it's quite a wide framing. So there's a lot of just sort of dead space around them but behind the Colombian you have that split diopter shot right down the middle and you have uh, Angel standing very nervously on the on the landing and it's from that that you transition out to the shot of this gun just appearing behind his head it's wonderful stuff because he's he's so vulnerable in that shot visually so you're immediately yeah. on edge but what he does really well is that he orientates the audience. So everyone knows where everyone is. And even though, even if you might not have registered 
you you know that there's showers there because you can you've seen it. It's in the background. It's not really in your focus. Yeah. Well, it's it's in um it's in it's in Tony's one shot. It's right behind him. Yeah, and it's, so everything's set up. You know where Manny and Chichi are in the car because he's shown you. So you know that rescue is there, but they're distracted and yeah. It's 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 really really well set. Also, he um he blasts the horn at the at the blonde woman walking past at like just that perfect time to drag us. Yeah, to pull us out of it. Out of, out of, out of the scene and back down to the to the street level. It's um like that high wire tension that they keep in it is is yeah, it's wonderful yeah, yeah. stuff. Did you did you expect them to pull out the chainsaw? Uh, I must admit the chainsaw. I did know there was a chainsaw in it. However, it's pretty it's pretty jarring. It comes out of nowhere though, right? Like so normally for a gangster yeah. film, you know, it's guns. Maybe I'm just thinking like in the Godfather, uh, you know, so people get yeah. garroted, but chainsaw. The only film you can think of is the Texas yeah. Chainsaw Massacre. At this point, when you've got a chainsaw being wielded, yeah, I can I can only imagine what like what a jolt that must have been to see something like that. At this time, like it, in a film like this, is uh, I mean, still watching it now, like it is a brutal sequence to get through. It's it is brutal, isn't it? But I love the way that um, that he he pans down and kind of you don't see it, so it's left up to your imagination. And I actually I see a lot of Tarantino in in De Palma, in De Palma's work. So the and okay, so yeah. this. That whole scene, watching it again, just reminded me of the ear cutting scene in Reservoir Dogs. It's the same thing, you yeah. know, the setup, and then the cutting away, the hearing of the sound. So for me, he's aping De Palma. Yeah, I, I can very, I can imagine him as a massive De Palma acolyte. But I love the way that he just pans down. And you see the eyes, and you see the blood, and even when the blood's splitting, uh, it was a, it was a little touch, but. Al Pacino just puts his face behind the shower curtain as he gets splattered. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a wonderful little touch, and um, I don't really know what it what it really means other than uh, he just didn't want to get covered in blood. But it was great. Yeah, there's there's a couple of moments. There's um there's one just after there's that instant where it all hell breaks loose and everyone pulls out guns on them, and and Tony gets gets grabbed by the the lead Colombian gangster and just shoved back onto a, onto like a little desk drawer thing. And he's sitting on it and his, his face just goes, um, really slack. Yeah. He, 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 I would, I wouldn't even say it was his face. This is whole body just limp. limp it's, up. Yeah. It's very, it's a strange reaction and it's fascinating. Well, it's like an, it's, a, it's an acceptance of what's happening, but it also yeah. demonstrates that he's, he can deal with this. Uh, and in fact, the opening scene when we're introduced to Tony, he's been essentially he's been interrogated by the immigration officers, and we can see him again, cool under yeah. pressure. You know, he's spinning he's spinning the lies about him not being a criminal and whatnot. But he's able to he keeps he keeps trying to keep eye yeah, contact. He's, he keeps trying to catch somebody's eye to joke with them. It's really interesting. We know that he can deal with pressure the way it's shot. Yeah. There's multiple people in the room. And he's at total ease, and I think the same. This is the same. The same things being told to us. The same information is being dulled out. Yeah, he can deal with adverse pressure and interrogation. So at no point when uh, when he sees his friend Angel being chopped up, uh, and then he gets tied up, 
you know he's not going to give up the money. If anything, his defiance uh, and his kind of flagrant regard for authority is throughout the whole film, but we see it most here. He just spits in for spits the guy and says, oh, "Fuck you." I mean, at this point, yeah, I mean, he is our protagonist. Like, you know, this isn't a film that is about the the hunt and capture of a bad criminal. It's about a guy doing this. So it's always interesting to make films about anti-heroes or villains as protagonists or ostensibly villains as protagonists. And there's a point later on, which makes this really um, abundantly clear in the, uh, the restaurant scene towards the end. Um, Mm -hmm. But he shouldn't be right. Devlin, he shouldn't really be the hero. No, exactly. Uh, there's a you know there's a there's an old adage when it comes down to gangster films and criminals you know audience members from from way back from Howard Hawks 1930s been fascinated with these types of characters yeah you know, partly because they they do the things that we wish we could do yeah you know they're able to they're able to um put aside sort of the moral uh moral issues that that restrict us from making those kind of decisions. You know, I would never become a drug dealer because I've got a moral kind of obligation to be like, no, I couldn't do that. I couldn't destroy another human being's life by dealing drugs. I'm really, I'm very, really bad it, at maths as well. So, yeah, and that is terrible. Although well, you don't need to be very good at maths. No, um, no, no. They've got a machine for it. It's in the film. Oh yeah, yeah. No, you're right. It doesn't yeah, count for... it, right? It's like fifteen hundred dollars short. Yeah. So, but that's their fascination: is they're able to they're able to do that, and they're able to be, and they're normally really charismatic. And Al Pacino is really charismatic, and Tony Montana is really charismatic, and he's even charismatic in this scene when he's being he's being faced with a horrific, horrific death. And one of the things that De Palma mm. uh, mentioned about the film is that he wanted the violence to be real, he wanted it to be visceral, he wanted it to be this is. This is how it really is, and what I what I also love. And I, so when when Manny and Chichi realise that Tony and, and Angel haven't come back uh, for in a while, they they sort of shoot up the place. Some some, some Colombians get shot. Manny gets shot. Uh, the guy with the chainsaw comically the chainsaw gets shot and sort of does a little spill, which is great. And then he. And this is brilliant. He just uh, just jumps out of a window. He chainsaws a window down and then jumps out <laughs> of it whilst fucking himself up. It's brilliant. And he's in like the, oh no, I would even say the worst golf gear you've ever seen. It is brilliant. He just flies <laughs> out the window. Is he, is he wearing like a, like a, a mustard colored velour tracksuit? He's got mustard on mustard. Yeah. It's, an, it's a big no-no. But what I love is is how you know the violence has spilled out onto the street. You know he he's like limping with this chainsaw, bloodied, and and then Tony just chases him down. You know he's like get the yayo, and then yep. in front of everybody, just shoots them. Read into it all you want. Like I said about the violence of the crime wave spilling out onto the streets of Miami. Uh, to me, this just shows again how um, one of one of Tony's great strengths is he's willing to go there he's willing to go to that next step where other others wouldn't and that's what kind of makes him the leader of this kind of pact of friends he's got him manny 
little Chi-Chi. I call him that because I know it from uh, IMDb, but I don't think he's actually ever called Chi-Chi. Maybe one. No, this was a this was an interesting one that a lot of these um, secondary characters. First time I watched it, I was I was catching names every now and then, like um, at one point uh, Elvira or El- Elvira says um, Nikki the pig. Yeah, and I think that's supposed to be the fat guy with the mustache, right? Yeah, because the second time I watched it, it's like, oh, yeah, it's Nikki. But it's it's um, then they it's never characters call is... you just no you just no no no. She says it the way that they've cast these secondary characters is they've all got something about them that that makes them recognisable, and it does a good job in in that respect. You know, little Chi Chi wears silly hats. Angel wears these crazy flashy. I mean, he also just gets chopped up really quick. Um, but he's in it pink on pink. So you yep. immediately like, wow, who's that guy? But I, th- I think that I think that comes under this idea that, um, again, like for, as much as uh, uh, I think the Colombian scene is, is my hands down favorite scene in the film. Uh, I think the, the scene that tips its hand the most as to what this film is actually about is um towards the very, it's very end for of the second act. It's great. Which is uh, where uh, Tony has achieved everything and is desperately unhappy. Almost unconscious, drunk, in a restaurant, with a wife that hates him, um, talking about how uh, he's the bad guy. But at this point, he's kind of, he's indicting everyone around him. He says, you're not the good guys. And this is after he's spoken to uh, his bank manager, who's another, he's a kind of, during the montage, you see Tony dropping off uh, two successive big shipments of cash. The first time, the bank manager is standing at the window with this big grin on his face. Second time, he has the concerned look. Um, yeah. But I love that um, even in this stupid montage, which it is, um, the doling out of the control of the doling out of information that department has, it's like he still knows what he's got to tell you. He still knows what you as an audience need to know to get you to the next part, which is fantastic because once you come out of that montage, you then meet this bank manager and he's very oily and he's very um, kind of surface level charming, but he's a scumbag as well. And he's happy to profit off the drug trade uh, up until the point that it starts to cause him trouble. And it's not that he's going to stop. It's just that he, like everyone, like Mel the cop, from Ghostbusters to like everyone, all these authority figures, the actual infrastructure of the United States itself is being indicted that there are no good guys. There are just bad guys who have established themselves long enough to be considered, you know, the good guys because they've written it into laws or they've, they've immunized themselves. So um, I would say that Frank being a, a cheerful and chipper guy who seems to, like you say, have some sort of code, which is that his idea is that he just wants to bring in the drugs and he wants to have um, his operation and that he doesn't want to let greed uh, take him over because he says it's the guys who make out of this business are the guys that fly straight under the radar. Um, so yeah, I think like Frank fulfills his role in that they're all villains. He goes to Frank's house. He meets Frank. Frank um, 
recruits him. And this is where we meet uh, Alvira or Alvira. Mm. I would I would say Elvira because of Elvira's movie mystery, but her name the pronunciation of her name changes depending on who's saying it. But she comes down and she comes down from uh, yeah massively fake. But she comes down uh, like she's descending from the heavens, and and the reason why I was like we we're, we're getting some some real heavenly symbolism is the music is telling me this too because it's chiming away in this kind of floaty airiness and also michelle pfeiffer's unnaturally uh got her hands pressed up against the elevator either side of the door almost creating wings uh, but it's it's very nicely done and she comes down and i got a question for you because her character it's not that it's she's problematic but she's not very she doesn't really serve that much of a purpose in the film or does she because as part of tony's uh sort of ambition and seek and he sort of seeks out the American dream. Is she just another part of that American dream? She's very white, very blonde. She's from mm. middle America. Well, uh, Baltimore. Well, Baltimore. Okay. Is that North? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to go middle America. <laughs> that's, that's fine. It's not New York and it's not LA. Yeah. It's, it's in the middle. middle. But, but yeah, so how how did you interpret her character and her purpose really in the film? Because Tony immediately when he's at Frank's house is we get the sense that right he wants her. Whether or not he's in love with her, I don't know. But he looks at her, and the music tells us that he's he wants her. Why? Yeah. Um. It's yeah. It's odd. She is, um, I guess, maybe she represents another form of attainment. No, I definitely think she does. Yeah, she's she's another trapping that he needs to get. I mean, it seems that she's, she's certainly one of the first women that he directly interacts with. Um, he doesn't seem interested, um, during the Miami beach sequence when they're off to the Colombian deal. Everyone or, else is talking about the girls and he is he is fixed yeah, on Or the even when Manny shows him the tongue trick, he doesn't really seem that interested in it. Yeah, that's true. He talks about that's a little later though, first. right? That's um that's that's after they've after they've started oh, no, you're right. Frank. Yeah, you are right. Yeah. So, um, you are right. So it's 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 unusual. It seems that he that he does, but um her introduction, like you say, yeah, is this, this kind of an, angelic. You know, she gets the the Maroda synths and she comes down in the elevator and she swishes into the room, but then she's immediately like a dick to everyone. <laughs> so. yeah, she looks so uninterested in everything in the film, yeah. uh, which makes me wonder, really, what is her purpose in the script? Hmm. Yeah, because she doesn't really fulfil anything other than. Like you said, another another thing for Tony to possess, to seek. Yeah. And then once he gets her, they 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 talk in, they reference having a child, slightly. It didn't really go anywhere. Yes. He just he, he mentions that you know, she's she's done so many so much drugs that her womb is polluted. 
but apart from that, it doesn't really go anywhere. And then after that restaurant scene, she just she just leaves the film. He um, right, so ju- he's constantly asking people about her. I think it's um, so in that sense, it's another betrayal and it's another thing that's pushing him uh, off the cliff towards just the outright monster that he becomes by the end. Um, yeah, I suppose so. I never, I never looked at it that way. Because he is obsessed, I mean, he is obsessive about yeah. finding her, and he, after the uh, after the assassination in New York goes wrong, he he sends a message through uh, Nikki or one of the other underlings to say, "Tell her I tell her I love her," but he just says it like that. Tell her I love her. Um, so yeah, whether the suggestion is that his lust for everything can't really be passed out one thing from the other so rather than person to person human affection he considers that to just be another thing that he needs to get which he kind of references again in that ref in the uh, restaurant scene he's talking Mm -hmm. about yeah that he's going to be 50 with us with a sack for a belly and is this what we is this what we worked for so we could sit here and eat this shit amongst all of these uh, old, rich, old mummies, which is some great extras casting, by the way. Yeah, it was. It, um, having worked on Emmerdale, it looked like the extras from Emmerdale. It's the, been the waspiest restaurant that ever existed, and it's great. Everyone looks like old and white. Everyone looks like Margaret Dumont here from the Marx Brothers movies, because <laughs> <laughs> they're all so. Everyone's monocles are dropping one after another. You can just hear them. Uh, but during that sequence, he's talking about, is this what we do? And he's like, do we just eat this food and we drink this? Eating, fucking. And he just gathers it all up as just things. Um, so maybe that's that's why she's there and this idea that, you know, how, how desperately tragic it must be to be a an object um mm. because that's how we end the silly montage right we end the uh the the excess built on excess built on excess montage and we see tony's uh empire growing and growing and growing and then it finishes with a an ominous synth chord and her doing like 15 bumps of coke in a row i think well she looks like she could do with a good meal yeah Michelle Pfeiffer, especially in very gaunt, yeah. very. I she she doesn't look healthy in the film. No, I think they um, I think that's very much purposely. Yeah, there's uh, yeah, you can you can tell that they've contoured her uh, face with makeup in the in that restaurant sequence to make her cheeks look really sallow, and and and, mm-hmm. and sunken. Um, so yeah, it's it's an interesting one. It's an interesting one in terms of what she should be representing um i think this is going to be quite a common theme because we're going to be looking at a lot of films from the same sort of era here 80s and 90s uh the sidelining or sometimes not even sidelining just scripts don't seem to know what to do with female characters sometimes they know they need one they need them for a few key sequences, but then they just let these characters just sort of slosh around in the background the rest of the time. She's probably only on screen like four times. Yeah. 
um there's there's a there's a nod in the dialogue that she's reclaiming her her self-worth by no i'm leaving alone and it's the it is the first time in the film that she makes a decision that's not based around the the two men that are keeping her on as a trophy one of the themes 100 percent 1983 is excess and the 80s and the Babylon Club, thoughts on the Babylon Club, because we spend uh, quite a bit of time, actually, film film minutes in the Babylon Club. Uh, I I really liked it, just the the pinks and the uh, the way that the whites come off, the, the sort of the neon, the mirrors. Uh, I really, really liked it. And but I think I'm liking it and I shouldn't because it's I think it's supposed to be garish and horrible and and a. A, re- a reflection of how uh, mi- how excess and materialism has caused us to become vapid. Uh, that's me getting real deep. But I quite like the music, and I quite like the aesthetic. And I've been to Miami, and I didn't see anyone dressed like that, which is a shame, but I wanted to dress like that really bad. Yeah, when you were talking about the club, and especially that pink neon aesthetic, I was thinking pink and, uh, pink and pale blue aesthetic that's what you think of when you think of Miami. And I was, I was wondering whether this is the film that codified that. What, that codified Miami Vice? Yeah, basically. Miami Vice and then subsequently, I mean, obviously Vice City. And, um, but yeah, the, the sort of the permanent sunset, the really kind of vibrant neon ready purple sunsets, the white, whitewashed nightclubs with, pink and blue neon lights and um lots of very trashy synth scores and i think this this film might be the one that single-handedly created that aesthetic right in my head there is another film starring eric roberts set in miami what am i thinking of what is this do you know what I could be talking about? Some sort of Eric Roberts Miami-based film? Are you thinking about the one with Alec Baldwin? Oh, maybe. Heavens something with Terry Hatcher. No, that's uh, that's Florida. No, uh, Sorry, I know that. That's in bloody Miami. Christ. No, that's in Carolina. No, uh, I have no idea. I'm not going to lie. I'm not huge on Eric Roberts. Uh, he's not my Really? Favorite. You he's mean... Not, he's not my favorite Roberts. I prefer... So you've... I prefer Emma Roberts of Scream 4 uh, fame. Yeah. Okay, good. But that means that you've not seen A Talking Cat in Tarobang. <sighs> no. No, I haven't. Have you not seen... Uh, you've not seen A Talking Cat? You know when I gave up on Eric Roberts? When Sly Stallone and James Woods tried to blow him up. You know what? That's what I'm thinking of. Is it Assassins? No, but it's close. It's uh, The Specialists, where you get the to see Sly Stallone's... Sweet ass as he's banging Sharon Stone in the shower oh, in a very awkwardly so, so unconvincing. <laughs> Neither of them want to be there, but both of them want to show their best side to camera, so they're just having a little wrestle to see who gets to. Poor Sharon yeah. Stone. She's like, Where is Michael Douglas when I need him? I've got Sly Stallone's ass thrusting me. <laughs> the specialist. Yep. Okay. Well, absolutely nailed that one, didn't we? Yeah, that's a future episode. We got you, Eric Roberts. Great. Um, So moving on. I think he's uh, got cornrows in them as well. (laughs) 
like he's got cornrows oh in that film. <laughs> you know, I really liked his um, Spun. Did you ever see Spun? No, I just told you. Eric Roberts is not my thing, baby. I I'm know, but he's, watch he's, in, he's in Spun for like six or seven minutes. It's a Jonas Ackerland film. Um, I don't care whose film it is. <laughs> right. It's uh, Jason Schwartzman and um, uh, Mina Savaria, the lead cast members. And John Leguizamo. Oh, Mina. Well, okay, you've got my attention then. <laughs> oh, I you, like had, you had my interest. Now you have my attention. Very good. Um, but you know what we were talking about the uh, the aesthetic, the the soundtrack. Which uh, since choosing the film, I've been listening to on runs and gen- just generally just listening to it at work. Yeah, um, I really like the soundtrack. But when you listen to the songs back to back, it becomes very apparent that they all sound exactly the bloody same. Yeah, and I do think that that is a purpose creative choice they've got debbie harry doing the rush rush to the yeah yeah yes it's uh, a wonderful song it's a wonderful song which is why i picked it yeah. for the intro yeah the uh the tremendously and appropriately indulgent intro so all the songs sound the same and i do think that this is a purpose, <laughs> exactly. uh, purposely creative choice uh to kind of make it have a dig at kind of pop music and or popular totally music of the times and how just interchangeable it is, and the lyrics are all very simplistic, the beats are all the same, and it all fits into this idea of excess. And they even call it out in the film, Frank, in the first yeah. Babylon scene, uh, orders a bottle of champagne, and he's like, uh, what is this, like $1,200 for a bunch of fucking grapes. What do you think? What do you think of that, Tony? So they they are fully aware of it, and it's in the script. And and we mentioned it before about Oliver Stone. He's he's he doesn't do subtlety. De Palma, he he sometimes he does, but but I think they are telling us, and it, it refers back to what I was saying before about the the rappers and maybe misappropriating the material. And mm. I think you're right. I think they just cherry pick the bits that suit what they're trying to push, but. A bit like Wall Street and the bankers that then follow it. And then those people that follow like the wolf of Wall Street now, like, yeah, great film. Um, Scarface is reflecting a time and a period that actually was a bit naff. And they're saying that whilst also pretending to have fun. Because Michelle Pfeiffer, when she's dancing, is having no fun. Yeah. Oh, it it looks like like an aerobics workout. Yeah, it does. But, but Jane Fonda yeah, but she's, smiled she's when she did a workout. I know. Yeah. I've done it. You've watched several. I've done it. Imagine. It's yeah. very tough on the on the glute. <laughs> but I'm sure it'll all pay off. Oh, it does, man. I've got a sweet, sweet trunk. <laughs> <laughs> a bit like Sly's and the Specialist. I was actually as ass yeah. double. I was like oh, Joey okay. Tribbiani and Friends. I got asked. To Wait, wasn't that like but... 1996? Yeah, I had an ass like a 10-year-old boy. Because <laughs> I was 10. <laughs> what have we done? We've completely got off on one. Right, so what happens in this film, right? What does happen <laughs> in this know. fucking film? Should we move on from the Babylon Club? Let's. Okay, we can. Okay. Um, All we see really in these uh, opening scenes from the Babylon Club is that the cogs are turning. Like he's listening to Frank talking about the rules, the rules in which he'll break later on in the film, um, about 
about um, not underestimating the other man's greed and don't get high on your own supply. But he's not really listening. He's just he's just taking it all in. I can rule all of this. And he even says it in the ne- uh, in the next scene. And I love his his. I wouldn't say his naivety, but his just like belligerence. He's like, yeah. she likes me. He's in the car with Manny, and he's like, she likes me. And he's referring to Alvira. Where he gets she likes him from, I don't know. But I love his just like dogmaticness of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in the eyes, Chico. He's like, he's convincing himself that she's into him. Why would she be into him? Yeah, I don't think she like... is into him. But I love that that's his, that's his approach, which is, no, 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 she's into me. She likes me. But from this, Devlin, we're going to move to... Now, I'm not going to say problematic. Are you not? I'm going to say interesting. I thought maybe you'd gone for a thesaurus. No, no, no. I don't have a thesaurus. I only know problematic and interesting. They're my only descriptors. Gina. Tony goes to... Once he becomes a success, so it's like three months later, and he's now one of... uh, You know, he's one of the trusted members of Frank's organization. He goes to see uh, his little sister and his mother. And I quite like this scene, actually. But interestingly, the actress who plays his mother is like four years older than Pacino. That's a tough paper round. Really? She looks like she's about, yeah, she looks like she's about 20 years older than Pacino. I know Pacino is a, a star at this point, but, oh, but they I can do wonders, can't they? With makeup. I guess the um the the ages are really interesting. I was surprised, uh, not so much to find out how old he is in this, because you can see that this is kind of like we said, this is a transitional role for him. This is, you know, this is middle aged shouty Pacino's first out in, but he does he does seem to believably age in the film, um, from those early sequences in, in yeah they do Freedom little. Town. Little subtle things with his hair. The hair, especially, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, what I was surprised by was was how um, was how much older he looked in this than he did just three years earlier in Cruising. I looked up; he's forty three in this, which meant he it's was crazy, isn't it? Which meant he was crazy, forty in Cruising, but he could easily pass for the you know, early thirties in that. Because um, the character kind of demands him to be, you know, like. A, a young, slightly impressionable guy. Um, I think he's got that that knack, a bit like Kurt Russell, of being able to grow an incredible beard, which has helped him in certain roles. So in Serpico, uh, he looks older because he's got a great, big, yeah. bushy beard. That's true. He would he would have been young in Serpico too, right? I know he would have been young, but he looks older than yeah. he should be, and so, he wears one of those silly fisherman hats. Yes. Um, so the, uh, yeah, well, that, that's weird. And also that Mary Elizabeth uh, Mastrantonio is. Um, yeah, I'm glad you said it. It's, it took me a while in the intro to get that one right. It's, it's yeah, it's definitely. Um, she's uh, she's what 18, 19, 20, 19, I think, at the point that we first meet her, and um, she represents the troublesome side of De Palma because she basically has got not all the boobs out, but she's risque throughout the whole film and and this is to talk about her entire character yes it was not our intention to put two back-to-back incestual storylines in in the first two episodes this podcast series but it just so happened to be that i completely forgot 
all of this when I picked Scarface. Well, and and also um, that I hadn't seen uh, um, Frankenstein in so long that I forgot the, that that was weird. So all I hope is that the choice that you make at the end of this episode does not involve brother and sisterly love. It's getting a little um, bit, a little bit strange. Let's find out. Let's find mm, out. We'll find out, won't we? But, but my so we so Tony and Gina. I this is the one aspect of the film that I really did struggle with as far as what is the deeper meaning. The film yeah. tells us, and it's actually it's it's probably one of my big dings against the film is I actually hate the scene when Manny pretty much just tell, tells us why Tony acts the way he does with Gina. You know, he says, oh, he's he's overprotective of you. He's the older brother. Oh, the ba- after the, the bathroom slap. Yeah, you're the only thing that's pure in his life. And I'm like, no, this script has been so good and so smart throughout this whole film. And now you're going to go to that level where you're just going to tell us. And it to me, that feels like that that was the moment where they thought in this particular storyline, they weren't too confident with whether or not it was being portrayed that way. So they just said, they just went out and said it, just went, yeah, yeah, this is why Tony is the way he is. But I was hoping to find something deeper. I mean, what were your thoughts between Tony and Gina and what that actually meant? Do you think much like how Elvira's character can be reduced to uh, Tony having a voracious need for things? Of whatever that may be, he needs he he needs more things, and so uh, Elvira represents because he sees her as very glamorous, and that she belongs to somebody whose position he seeks to usurp. Um, at the point where we see Gina in the club for the for the first time, when she's dancing with the the low level gangster, and she goes to the bathroom, and he flies into a rage because he sees her um getting he's getting handsy and uh obviously later in the film that she says that that's because he has he looks just like Manny. feelings towards her and then she tries to shoot him does shoot him successfully uh it's it doesn't really it doesn't really go anywhere does it it's it's implied but even the even the implication of what's being said doesn't really. We talked, you know, we talked a lot and given credit to Oliver Stone's script, but this is probably the one storyline where um, I like, even though it's tragic and I was sad for Manny the way he gets killed, and I liked that character. Um, I, I like the fact that I, I was so emotionally invested in him. Yeah, that it really hit me hard when he gets killed. And so you could argue that it's worth having that through line to have that that payoff at the end, but maybe don't make it so explicit that potentially there's a there's a sexual element the, yeah, between the, dad the relationship was, was kind of as opposed room. to a paternal one, which is at the, in the early scenes feels like it's yeah. a paternal thing. You know, they mention in very very passing, you know, blinking you miss it. Um, the, you know, the dad, you know, it says about you're not like Papa. It's like we never had a dad, uh, so I get every. I, I, so I get that straight away, and even the dynamic between Tony and Manny feels like older brother, younger brother. But so there's a there's a Shakespearean tragedy, you know, tragic love story being woven. But the 
the idea that Gina thinks that maybe Tony, you know, yeah. wants her sexually. I, I wish they just got um, that. I kind of, I didn't need it, and it didn't really. And the fact that I didn't need it is because I don't think any of it really paid off. But what I was hoping is was that you could maybe shed some light on it. But clearly, I think you were as bamboozled as I was with it. I, I, yeah, basically, um, it was a it was a plot that was just sort of there, and that I could scramble around to try and find meaning for, but it it didn't strike. Yeah, there there isn't any really. We're searching, aren't yeah. we? We're properly searching. I, I will I will say this as well. Uh, I, I'll you know not happy with the way that Stone's written that particular subplot. I'm also just not happy with the score every time. Yeah, well, it's not it's not really a score, is it? It's a no, it's not really. But then I checked out this guy and I George Georgia Moroda. So he's very famous. Yeah, he he yeah, very famous. He's he's been involved in some of the best songs ever written. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. He's worked with basically everybody, but this score, I I'm I've I've given De Palma great credit in this film, but the use of the score music just undercuts so much of the good work that he's doing visually because audibly it's like being hit in the yeah. face. You know, oh, Tony is now, he, oh, he doesn't like it when it is. people touch his little sister's ass. I don't need this. It's almost, it's yeah. almost like the Clockwork Orange score, but it doesn't we're fit in this film because we're getting this wonderful pop yeah. music and this wonderful kind of sheen and aesthetic being shown visually. And then we just get this, real dour oppressive score and it doesn't it, it it jars with me and i don't i don't like it but it's a, it's a weird score in the other times it's kind of you know a little upbeat and funky and yeah, yeah. but it, it feels like a temp score it feels like somebody's gone in and because it's it's repeated um themes but the themes aren't adapted to fit the scene so they're just kind of dumped on the, top the, the best of parts of the happening. film are the, are the bits where they use the original music uh, the original songs, sorry. Uh, whereas every time the score yeah. comes in, it, it, like I said, it's like a sledgehammer coming in. This is what you should feel right now, and this is this is this is what this scene represents. And I, it was the it was the parts that I really really disliked, and it also hugely dates the film as well. Yeah, that's, yeah. You know, very I, much so. it's, it, you could you know you make the same argument of you know Terminator, the original Terminator, but. In that, the the music is a character, and in this, it just like you said, it feels like a temp score. Feels like something you would write in, yeah. just to you know, give give some atmosphere while you're yeah. going through the dailies. And it's yeah. it's not the um it's not the instrument, it's not the synths themselves, and it's not the texture. No, no, I, I I quite like MIDI scores. This, yeah, this, this um, I mean, there's there's what an entire massive synth wave revival has been going on for several years now which is uh, yeah even even some even artists like daft punk you know that this is this is the yeah. area that they work within uh so it can be done well i just don't think it's done very yeah. well here i mean uh, uh, even though this 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 guy has you know electric dreams this guy yeah. has been responsible for some great great tracks i yeah. think he wrote push it to the limit you know, he's it's got it would make sense um but yeah this is so it's it's not the it's not the music. Um, there's this guy Carpenter Brute. He's French, and even though his name is Carpenter Brute, and obviously he would be obsessed with John Carpenter, 
I think his stuff sounds a lot more like Giorgio Moroder stuff. And it's, um, he does a lot of, you know, 80s genre film inflected music for imaginary films. It's that for a guy who seems to have a, a handle on melody, the score is, is very amelodic or, or it's, it's not, it's memorable because there's bits of it stuck in my head right now, but it's not, um, where John Carpenter makes scores and his scores are there to create a, a tonal and a textural like atmosphere that drags you in through a scene. And, and Carpenter always talks about just doing the bare minimum to get you through a scene. Um, yeah, I mean, that, he's, he's stated it many, many times, hasn't he? That he writes his own score music because he just sees it as not window dressing, but it's just there to... I think he, I think he actually plot. calls it wallpaper. Yeah, wallpaper, yeah. not so... Uh, yeah. Um, whereas this, I don't know, because it's, it's heavy. Like, it comes in and it, and it hits you and... It takes over the scenes. Yeah. At times, you're like, "Oh God, just get a better score." Yeah, and and I'm we're back in. It pulls me out of the film. It really does. At times, yeah, especially the Gina scenes mm-hmm. when Tony's and Pacino's doing a really good job with his performance. I don't need yeah. the music to tell me that at this moment Tony's going into dark places. Yeah, you know what it's like it, is um, uh, Twin Peaks. Because uh, Angelo Badalamenti just created the music for Twin Peaks and he created a, a series of themes around um, emotional uh, ideas or emotional cause. And then Lynch or, or Mark Frost or whoever was directing that episode at the time would just drag and drop the score on top. And the thing that, that works with Twin Peaks, though, is that Twin Peaks is... Um, is really off kilter and especially that first two series were um almost played as if they were sort of a twisted version of a daytime soap opera so it makes sense that at the end of a scene you have this very heavy-handed little piece of score music that tells you exactly how you should be feeling at that moment but when they do it in twin peaks they're doing it somewhat ironically whereas Mm. uh yeah the the problem that scarface has is that it feels like that's quite po-faced and and yeah you're right it sort of it detracts from the hard work that the very very capable cast are doing but i wanted to mention something that that um comes up uh constantly in the in the whole film and that's the the portrait of paradise or yeah what i what i think is the symbol of of the the dream uh, it's in. It juxtaposes every scene that we have where there's violence and there's death and there's consequences. So in the Colombian scene, when Tony walks in, there's a huge. Uh, well, it's not huge, but it's really prominent in the shot in the uh, the two. Well, the three shot actually, because you've got the lady on the bed with a sort of sunrise paradise portrait, and then when Tony kills Frank and the George who killed the Scolari brothers in Ghostbusters. That entire wall is, and I, rem- I the only reason why I say that now is because I remembered what their name was, and it was the Scolari brothers. Um, when, uh, yeah, when he kills uh, kills Frank, and I can't remember what his name is, it's like Bernstein or something like that. Well, I, I like that um, the first time you see that is um, 
after he gets his green card and they and they realize that they're out and they're free and they're free in America and you have that big shot of the beautiful purple hazy skyline and then the camera pulls away and it's a poster and then the camera pans down and then and they're in the van and um that's another one and they're of in the rat van yeah yeah um the cost the, the cost of paradise as well as like the symbolism of that i just i really love the way um De Palma uses the the space kind of three-dimensionally we talked about uh kenneth brenner's inability to to move mm-hmm. his camera in a way that that created interesting stuff and it's because i think his his production design there was nothing there for him to shoot at we said that it's just one big square room with a stupid staircase at the back um but clearly De Palma, his cinematographer and his production designer worked very hard to make sure that there was this this vast three-dimensional space for them to move around at all times so the the angle that that truck is at the angle that it's at to the club and to the poster is just it's great the perspective is always shifting as it comes down because the back end of the film is where it starts to really kind of barrel through oh it's quick it is quick isn't it as soon as we get to the so frank's dead um and tony takes over we have the montage which uh a bit of an 80s trope, and I think Rocky Four pretty much ruined the montage for everybody because that ruined film... or perfected. Oh, it depends on your perspective. I mean, I quite like Rocky Four, but that's because I, I quite like watching crap. film an entire <laughs> montage. No, it's not crap. It is. It is what it is. It's, it's the it's the pinnacle of what exactly that particular type of cinema is. It is, and, and it will also break you. If you let it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I think Rocky Four has some questions to answer with regards to its use of the montage. But in 83, yeah, it's, 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 it's already a trope. But I think De Palma, like you've mentioned before, he manages to delve out a lot of information. And actually, the film itself is not really interested in Tony establishing his empire. They're more interested in how that how him gaining success and achieving his goals has actually affected him in a negative way. And that's what they're really more interested in. So that's, that's why they choose to just show this all in a montage. You know, he marries Alvira, he buys Gina, the salon, because we, you know, earlier in the film, she's a hairdresser. Um, He, you know, he builds his mansion and this is again, referring to his lack of class. You know, he's got a huge portrait of him and Alvira, and it looks terrible. Mm-hmm. We've got this gaudy, horrible blood red on the walls with black and gold. Yeah. And the am I am I right in thinking that the first time we see that lobby in all its glory is in the end of the film? Yeah, yeah. No, I think the. So I don't remember uh, seeing it before. As, as far as a like a big, a, yeah, a big one. Yeah, a big establishing shot. Yeah, it's right at the end. But we do get a sense of what inside the mansion looks like from just several different shots of his, his bathtub, lobby, his bathtub, and it. And what I like about the art direction in the film is how the way Tony has done his mansion to the way Frank did his. You know, Frank's was quite minimalistic, glass. Um, he was quite transparent you know every all all parts of the living space was open to the elements you know you could look in um but 
His bar was minimalistic. Everything was small. Mm. Again, very qu- quite clockwork orange. You know, pure white. Bits of bits of sporadic art, but nothing too showy. Tony, it's it's all about empire building. So he's got these uh, Greek pillars with uh, very well. You could say Greek and Roman architecture throughout, and. It's all it's all feeding us that information that this is somebody who's wanting to create some form of, I guess, legacy or empire, but he just doesn't have the class, and it, it just comes off, off quite tacky. You know, if you were in if you were in DFS or yeah. the range or any any number of homeware shops, <laughs> this is the section with the diamond yeah. encrusted tiger or the diamond encrusted. Uh, black panther that only somebody from and i don't want to stereotype but from say essex or ah i was hope i was hoping you were going to get super specific and slag off one very small part of staffordshire sorry to disappoint devlin i stay true to my roots yeah i must admit i hadn't really um i hadn't thought about that but it's 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 a very good point um yeah especially that big contrast you know Red, red and black, and 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 white and transparent. It's... Should we talk about a character that's uh, becomes quite important yeah. in the final act? He's pretty much the instigator of Tony's demise. Um, Souza, he's an interesting character, and um, I don't know the actor. Uh, and I looked at his IMDb, yes. and he, he's a sporadic kind of character actor, but relatively small. But I think he's really good in this film. Yeah. He, um, He's really charming. In the opening scene when Tony meets him with Omar and he accuses him of being an informant and kills him outright, he's very charming. Um, A little bit, again, of the film telling us exactly what he is, but it's shorthand, it is what it is. Um, You know, they mentioned that he was educated in Oxford and he's not your stereotypical drug dealer. But I think you get that without that, that exposition anyway just because I think the actor does a really good job and the script, the way he talks, the way he interacts with Tony, you know, he's constantly looking at him with, I wouldn't say disapproval, but there's a sense of you're, you're not part of my social circle, but I have to do business with you. And that, yeah, and that's what he so he's, he's going to use. He's going to use him for his, yeah. for his and own. I get, I get that. He feels, he feels yeah, like he's going to read from it. the, uh, from the actor's performance, and I think he does a really good job. And he's he is it, he's called out. You know, Frank actually calls everything right in the film. He says he'll stab you yeah. in the back. Literally does, uh, not without stabbing him, but still, it's in the back. Um, he's yeah, a snake in the grass, so to speak. But he also says quite clearly to Tony, "Do not fuck me, Tony." No, everyone doesn't want anyone to fuck anyone. That's my Bolivian accent, man. Um, there's there's a couple of repeated phrases. People don't want to fuck. Um, no. Everyone wants to talk about their balls. And a lot of people want to know whether another person can stick their whole head up their ass. Yeah. Yeah. I'm keeping some of those for the ending, I think. <laughs> he's, 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 a, he's an interesting character. And he... so. To move it along after after Tony's got his success, and it's going to lead into 
the scene that I know that you want to talk about the most in this final act. Tony gets caught laundering money. Yep. Uh, we see, again, that whole idea that rich people are the tightest people in the world. He's, he's, he's uh, squabbling over $1,500. Yeah. Uh, which is over... Fifteen hundred dollars in a pot that's like two hundred and eighty-three thousand. It's like really wow. Okay, um, I, there's a there's a lovely scene. It's only short, but this this kind of this is Oliver Stone, I think, um, having having a poke at at those that protect the the rich and powerful. You know, the lawyer. Yeah. Where he's like uh, trying to trying to tell Tony, listen, you're going to have to do a bit of time for this. And there's another way. He's like. He does the um, he does the the guy from Die Hard. He basically says like, "Honey, baby." Yeah, there's a lot. Of... I I, yeah, he I can't. The he does it right. He does the honey baby right. Yeah, it's he the does the same that, line. The um the bank manager pulls it on on, on him as well. Calls him like yeah, Tony. It's, it's baby. like the go to. It's like the go-to 80s thing is to be like, "Listen, baby." Yeah. But this is the way he's like, "Honey, baby, I'm the king of." Uh, of of reasonable debt, but when you've got one point three million dollars in front of it, it's hard to convince a jury. Yeah. But I do like I do like that. But essentially, Tony's going to face uh, some jail time, and this is the part of the film where you're and if you're with Tony, which you should be, because the the whole film has been predicated on him being our anti-hero protagonist. However, you want to yeah. view him, he's our main character. Um, you're thinking, just take the three years in jail and you'll be fine. But he doesn't want to yeah. do it. And this, he feels like he's forced. The whole film, he's been against authority. He's, he's been a complete... He, he goes against any, anybody who tries to dictate to Tony Montana. He, he rejects. He pushes away. Yeah. He tells him to basically fuck, fuck based, you. Based on, um, on how much he knows he, he's under the yeah. he knows. I was just going to say based on how much he, he knows he's under the cosh. Based on how much he hated uh, being under communist rule. This is set up in, in yes, the start exactly. like again. You know, it's 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 set, all up, there. set up right at the beginning. Yeah. Right at the beginning, you're absolutely right. And uh, but he feels like he has to um, fall under Sosa, and Sosa asks him to help out with an assassination of some. You know, some Bolivian journalist who's spouting out, uh, basically calling out the major players within the drug drug trade organization. So Sosa wants him dead. And I, I do like the way that Tony, because it cut, it's like a hard cut from Tony being asked to help out. And he does sort of say, will you help us, Tony? Um, but again, in a very kind of charming, it's will you help? Yeah. You are going to help. And it cuts straight to the restaurant scene, which I know you want to talk about. So, well, we already go um, ahead, Devlin. Talk about it. <laughs> Do it, I dare you. Um, we'd already spoken quite a bit about it, which is, um, I mean, I just wanted to to sort of reiterate that I think that it clarifies the 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 themes of there are levels of villainy, and and everyone is unclean everyone's implicated uh it's the same thing as the the journalist who's i don't know if he's a journalist or an opposition politician or whoever it is that they want to assassinate at the un i like that they yeah i don't even think they they need to tell us because it doesn't matter it's somebody going out there telling the truth um 
which is enough. Like we we understand what risks this guy is 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 posing to the organization and what risk he's putting himself in by by putting it out there. Um, but he, so he's kind of exposing that this entire government structure is complicit. And I feel like Tony's speech here is the same thing. It's um, it's in the hands of a very, very talented performer who's inhabiting a very complete character. So even though this could be considered monologuing and also um, it could just be somebody heavy-handedly just doling out the theme of their film at your feet, it works because because it's it's all put together so well. It's just, um, it, it's great. Just the way he starts out almost catatonically drunk. It's, it's, and he builds to this crescendo of just, he's so unpleasant. But he says, and he says it throughout the whole film, like, at least I'm honest. Um, he's letting everyone know that this is the dirty work and that all of these people, all these wealthy people in this room, none of them got there clean. There's there's no such thing as clean wealth. So um, it's it's an interesting. I feel like like that's if there are themes like big overarching themes to pick out. I feel like that's the one. Uh, and the other is um, uh, that because the film is about cocaine, so it's a film sort of embodies what that drug represents. I mean, so much of the cinema we talked about, the seventies movie Brat cinema, the directors, um, a, a great many of them went into a massive Coke. It, it, like I said, that um, Coppola sort of burnt out in the early eighties. That was largely massively drug based during and, and yeah, during, during and after um, apocalypse now. Uh, yeah. Oh, ever, ever, ever so much. Um, and I'm sure that probably most of the people, it's Scorsese as well. Scorsese almost killed himself, right? During uh, the sort of Raging Bull era, I believe he, he almost died. Yeah, yeah. I think it was one of the reasons why he decided to go and do Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, it was some sort of redemptive opportunity to artistically dispel all that hateful shit that he'd gone through with this drug addiction yeah and so maybe I've, uh, and if, if we're saying that De Palma was, was adapting the script then I assume that this was an Oliver Stone thing which is that much like how um, Stephen King worked out a lot of his personal demons through external demons um, a lot of Stephen King's uh, classic writing especially from a um, a specific chunk of his massive bibliography is dedicated to uh, various him working out his his addiction problems uh, through fiction, and that maybe this is what this film is as well. So this is you know this is you get the first hit. Do you notice some um, when when uh, Tony does his first bump that there's a Jaws shot or the trombone shot? When he's in the car with Elva, with Elvira, I did notice that, yeah. Shot, but you don't do that shot unless you mean you mean to uh, put some some sort of 
implied meaning behind it. Yeah, that. totally. It's a, it's a, it's a big one to, to pull because it's, it's very noticeable for an audience and it happens before he actually, he takes it. It's when he gets in the car. So it's very strange, but, um, on second viewing, I assume that that's because that, like I said, was the first time you see him do any drugs on camera and, and maybe that's like the moment, like when Bart and Milhouse do the pure sugar squishies, <laughs> the, um, <laughs> the, uh, whoa that's good yeah. so now it's an hour in and um so you get the first rush and then you get the you know the 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 chasing ever ever greater highs and then you reach this pinnacle but it's not enough because addiction isn't about enough addiction is always about more so maybe it makes more sense that if you look at tony's um character out not just so much about a guy who's um consumed with with material greed but if you look at it more like and he's, he's, he calls uh, his wife a junkie and, you know, he's, he's the same. Um, he ends the film face down in what, like three shopping bags worth of Coke, just, just inhaling huge chunks of it. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I would say that, um, that's my, uh, that's, that's I feel like this this restaurant scene at the end. This is you know the the you've got the rush, and then you've had the soaring highs, and now this is the crash before the fiery conclusion, which addiction will end if you don't jump off the tracks when you get a chance. It will end in death. So speaking of which, so after the restaurant, Tony, the uh, Tony makes it. We prior to that, Tony's going to help out Sosa doesn't go very well the assassination does not go assassination attempt on the bolivian journalist does not go very well um no there's the kids kids in the car tony's uh tony still has some morals left yes well we talked about um we talked earlier about the difference between the godfather and this and that this the felt like the the crime wasn't organized crime it was chaos and dog eat dog um but this is this is this was the one element that gave you some redemptive qualities about Tony Montana, um, is that he's gonna say, you know, he's like Leon, no women, no kids. So he he yep. doesn't he's he doesn't agree with it. So he shoots the assassin, who I don't know if you recognise the uh, the actor, but he played the Pope oh, yes. in End of Days. <laughs> oh, was that what you were going with? That's I was a good going one. With that one. What were you going with? Ace Ventura's landlord. Ventura. Yes, Satan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you beat me to it. I went with the more obscure one, but you definitely went you with did. the better one. End of days. I don't know, man. You don't get many end of days references. I heard them scratching around. <laughs> <laughs> What's with all this dog food? Oh, pet Fib- food. Fiber. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Yeah, okay. You beat me on that one. But yeah, so he... Um, Tony just kills him outright. And then like, you know, I told you, I told you. And again, it's someone trying to tell him what to do. And he yeah. just completely rebels against it. Which has happened throughout the film. Mm-hmm. But, in this, but in this instance, he's not thinking straight. You know, he's... He's he's wired up to the max. 
and uh, and then when he when he makes the phone call, um, he comes back. He finds out that Gina's missing, Manny's disappeared, and then his mother rings him, and so does Souza. And this is where we, you know, we're really barreling through now. The, yeah, I, I didn't yeah. realize it, but the, the last thirty minutes are like bang, 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 bang. We haven't got time to mess around here, which again makes me think like this film is two hours and 50 minutes, but it doesn't feel like it. And I think it's partly because act three is like 30 minutes long. Yeah. Just doesn't, doesn't the, the act, the, you know, the way that the acts are split up and this final act is short. So Sosa declares war on Tony. Um, you know, don't fuck me basically. No. And then, Tony then goes to his mother's house, finds out the address, and here's a question. Did Tony know that the address that his mother gives him is Manny's house? Doesn't seem like I think it. he knew. Doesn't, doesn't seem like seem, he knew. He seems very it? surprised. It was, it, it, yeah, he seems surprised when he answers the door, but it's it, it surprised me that he wouldn't have known that. Well, the, yeah, I don't the, know whether that was because you would, you would think that, that he's coked up. You would think that he would know where his, his number one lieutenant lives. Although maybe that this was a place, because they said that they only got married yesterday. So maybe this is a place that they bought new and that they just moved to. Um, there are experts. No, because the mother, no, because the mother says she followed them. That's how she knows the address. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Hmm. And he even uh, gives a little look when the mother tells him the address in the house before he leaves that tells me that he knew, which is why I was asking. I, I took it that he actually knew that that was Manny, right. that he maybe pieced it together. But then when he opens the door, yeah, there's a, there's a, that. my theory kind yeah. of maybe gets poo-pooed because... He has enough time to contemplate what's yeah. happening, and he still shoots. Well, and and, and the, the synths tell you what to think. Oh, the music tells me that Tony isn't happy, yeah. and he just kills him outright. I'm um I'm genuinely gutted because I enjoy uh, Stephen Bauer's mm-hmm. performance. I like Manny the character. Um, I mentioned it before about it being almost Shakespearean. It's a bit like Macbeth, you know, in Macbeth. Oh yeah, he yeah. kills his brother. Um, and I think the same can be said here. And the, the, well, um, yeah. like Duncan, that he's the, he's the Duncan of the piece. Yeah. Although it's it's a bit. Yeah. Maybe I it's think... a bit. But yeah, I, I understand what you mean. That I'm not I'm not saying that that it's 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 perfect. Yeah. That, that theory is perfect. But there's there's that feeling that this was tragic. That this was the only pure relationship within the whole film. It's because we you know we I've skipped over it and we're not really mentioned it. But you know there's glances and there. They're film glances, they're movie glances, but they tell us the audience these two are really yeah. into each other, and actually their relation their relationships. I know. Cool. And I think the reason why Manny doesn't tell Tony that he's seeing Gina is he's waiting to marry her, so he can sort of so he thinks that maybe he'll be more accepting of that because throughout the whole film Manny's been portrayed as a womanizer and somebody who's just interested in the pussy. Um, but actually, in this case, he's he is actually genuinely in love with his sister. And he thinks if he gets married to her, maybe that will be the thing that gets Tony's yeah. approval. Yeah. He was wrong. The music. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's... it's um, yeah, this is the point at which you're reaching... 
kind of operatic heights as well of 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 emoting yeah yeah we're in we're in the full descent of this character is losing all of its humanity and we are you know like i said we as an audience member like manny so when manny gets killed um we're like why did you do that tony and then he takes gina against her will you know she fights against him when they get back to the mansion and we see the death squad following and what i meant by a strange uh racial coding is that the death squad despite the fact that literally everyone in this film is supposed to be from central america um we have very 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 caucasian looking leads who we're following and then this death squad are very feral looking with the big hair and the thing and they look like they came off the set of easy rider they're on the wrong film uh yeah there's um what am I, what else am I thinking? Did you see there was a lot of eighties movies which were just about generic Central American baddies. Well the one guy had um, looked like he'd been shot in the face with Homer Simpson's makeup gun. The Terminator? Yes. That's that's the guy Oh, the yeah. Well, I yeah, I know it's the same thing that like he, he had he, that he'd total... been tangoed. Yeah. Literally total tangoed. end of level boss thing about him. But he looks Germanic. Like much like maybe it's the Terminator connection, but to me he looked totally like Teutonic. But um, I took it a slightly different way that he was he was almost you know he was nameless and he was his the reason he was so generic was because it wasn't really him that that killed Tony. But that was me. I'm probably reaching there, Uh, but he Uh, was just very orange. But he was you know he was just death incarnate. He was yeah he was karma or whatever coming for him yeah because he 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 he's very purposeful and very slow and deliberate anyone else would just have shot him like 50 times but no this was like yeah like i said it felt you're right it's very operatic Uh, yeah we've we've mentioned the uh in passing the ending um quite famous scene uh spielberg shot some of the low angle uh, stuff of the Death Squad coming in. Um, ah. The reason why the reason why this is so uh, and it kind of well, happy accident with the the whole idea of this film being just excess and more and more and more. Um, after I almost I almost went into a, a reference that you were. You might not have got it. Was the naked gun reference? You know, more, more, more. Sex, <laughs> sex, sex. <laughs> yeah, I know the one. No worries. I'm staying. You know, when you're at home with the same woman night after night. Yeah. Over and over for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's for that's for another that's for another throwback series. Yeah. Though. But anyway. Uh, so the reason why this seems so deliberate, there's just multiple setups, is uh, Pacino actually burnt his hand, uh, putting it uh, on the on the we- on the blank weapon. Oh, I see, see, see. Uh, and was out of out of commission for like two weeks. So De Palma just had two weeks to shoot people shooting. Oh, like second which unit. Is why, yeah, which is why it's just so there's so much of just guns being shot and people being shot but they're all in singles or they're all in wides but you don't see Pacino shooting them because he wasn't there 
and it was the reason why uh, Spielberg got to direct some shots because the Palmer just said, "Do you want to come along and direct?" I some, had no idea. That's cool, shots. and that was it. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, and it just goes to show that even these major productions, you know, they have problems, and then you just have to work around them. Um, I don't think um, I don't think it's it affects the film in in too much, but you're right. It does feel um, does feel bloated. It does feel too much. Yeah, whether whether it's excessive, and it doesn't really it doesn't really bring too it doesn't really bring anything extra to the film, um, other than just we just see more violence yeah. being piled upon. Um, we get the famous line. Yeah, say hello to my little friend, which. Anyone who, even if you haven't seen Scarface, I think you know that that line yeah. is from this film, or if not from this film, you know that Pacino says it. And then we get the famous death, and you can read it. You can read into the symbolism. I'll give you my take, Devlin, and I'd be interested to hear what you think. But yeah, he falls from the balcony. He plunges to the depths. He goes into water. Water normally. Uh, symbolic of transformation, so life to death, um, a fall from grace. You, know, you can all sorts of things, or you could just say he just got shot in the back. Um, but what I did like was that he's getting shot by everybody from the front, and it's almost symbolic of Tony's character is that he can take anything head on, but he's blindsided, uh, and that blind that 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 aspect is the coke. I think that's what's being set up, is that because this is set off, set up and payoff. He earlier on in the film is looking at the surveillance cameras. He notices a truck and he says to Manny, "That truck's been there for three days." And Manny says to him something like, "Have you been watching that constantly?" And he says, "Well, how can I not? It's been there." There's a lovely shot where it pans from the surveillance cameras to Tony just sat blank with the coke in front of him and they're flooding in and he doesn't see it and to me that's uh that's a nice little visual storytelling of tony's been blindsided <sighs> and that's why he doesn't see it and he's and the reason why he's the architect of his own downfall he's the one who opens the balcony doors if he doesn't open his balcony doors the killer can't come in behind him uh so that's why i think they choose this Nameless, almost yeah. faceless killer, kind of. He's like a Terminator. Yeah, there's probably a little reference there. I think it was was Terminator '83 as well. Uh, Terminator was '84. So oh this, wow, this, so this is why I found, this oh, is why this, I found it interesting oh, that it precedes beats, it by a year. Oh, this beats Terminator then. But I would imagine that um, Terminator would be, you know, probably at least starting production. Or... Yeah, I'm not. I'm not suggesting James Cameron watched this and went. Hmm. Yes, that old, that's a good look. Glasses. I've got a cracking idea. Yeah. Bring but, me in. Bring me an enormous Austrian. But I definitely think that he takes the bullets head on, and he does. He sort of waves and like, oh, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Yeah, and he can take. That's that's where I just thought like we were we were crossing from operatic into very silly. <laughs> well, maybe I'm being generous then. Uh, yeah. What what were your thoughts on? on the ending other than what you've just said with it being being very silly oh no um i mean not to say that that silly is bad it's just that um because it's been such a long film to this point 
if I were to think back to that incredibly tense, incredibly well executed um, early sequence, and the same goes for the execution of Frank and Mel, those two things came from a completely different film to, to this. Um, we've we've built up to it. The film's earned it. It's just that you know. Um, maybe I would have found it a little more fascinating if we'd have managed to keep it on the rails a bit more. On the rails is is kind of a pun. That's um, fair enough. But yeah, I. But this is this is the iconic moment. I mean, it's it's possible that this film is only so well renowned and so well remembered and so culturally pervasive because of this sequence. So it seems ridiculous to slag it off for it. But um, yeah, just as it's not the part of the film that I found the most interesting. I felt like okay. I felt like the first two thirds of the film were were more interesting. And that this was, it's a satisfying conclusion because, you know, you watch a lot of films that fumble the third act. I don't think this fumbles it. I just think that this uh, takes a weird zag off to a completely different direction. And, and that's, and that's fine. And, and that it's, it's a satisfying conclusion to the film. It's just, um, it's just, it's a bit of a lurch from where we, from where we started. But, um, I, I like it as a as a sequence and um, yeah production design and 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 it's 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 very practical and it feels very it feels very legitimate and very real and you think this is sort of a similar ish era to something like Commando which we obviously both love but Commando is very silly this is somewhat pushing in that direction there's less springboards. But there's we're, we're in the same ballpark, aren't we? We're still in the same ballpark of eighties excess. Just get yeah. the biggest well, guns you have and just mash people into a fine pulp with them. Well, with that in mind, Devlin, would you recommend yeah. Scarface nineteen eighty three? Uh I absolutely would. Um I was uh, I was I was uh, very impressed, especially with the early going. I, I think it's um, I think it's it's totally deserving of its reputation, and um, yeah, glad I finally got around to it twice, no less. Um, and uh, as ever, we ask whether you, as the repeat viewer of this, did you waste your youth on Scarface? Uh, I don't think I did. I think I'm in total agreement with you. I think the the, the strength of the writing is apparent with how many quotable lines there are and that are still relevant even today. Uh, I think the character of Tony Montana has been so widely adopted in other media forms. Uh, clearly, the film in that respect is a success. Um, but I think there's also there's more to the film than just the aesthetics, the music, and the cautionary tale and the ro- of the rise and fall of Tony Montana. I think there's satire. I think there's yeah. politics. We didn't really touch upon the politics, you know, communism versus capitalism, um, mm. but it's there. Um, 
small, but but it's there. Um, and the and there's clearly huge statements being made about excess and uh, what that can lead to, and how even even in achieving the greatest wealth in the world, you won't necessarily uh, lead to satisfaction. Um, I also think that that essentially you've got a trio of artists who have fully mastered their craft at this point. You've got Oliver Stone, the writer. You've got Al Pacino, the performer. And I think you've got Brian De Palma as the director. All working at a really, really high level. Uh, I'd recommend this film to anybody who enjoys and watches films full stop. In particular, those that are not aware of De Palma and his and his back catalogue. Uh, along with Mission Impossible and maybe The Untouchables, this is probably his most accessible film to a wide audience. But hopefully, if you watch this, it might encourage you to seek out some of his more obscure works. Even something like Carrie, which you know was made in, what, 1976? So, uh, yeah, 76, 78 maybe, but yeah. yeah like... it's, it's Either way, we're talking 70s. So you think some yeah. of our younger listeners, they, they're not going to watch that. They're going to watch the 2012 remake or whatever it was with Chloe Moretz. Go back and seek out De Palma's Carrie. Is anyone is anyone watching The Rage Carrie 2? No one's watching that one. Is that the, is that the Maybelline <laughs> one? Oh, no. No, no it was the oh, theatrically oh, released. Oh, God. No, no one is watching that, including me, because I've not seen it, but I've read terrible <sighs> things. Um, but Maybe I'll, I'll make you watch it. Yeah, I think you will. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it also, you know, go back and watch Dress to Kill, Body Double. Um, mm. You know, unfortunately, he, for every Scarface and for every Untouchables, there's a mission to Mars. But he's he's one of those directors that I, I just don't think um, has, has got the same cachet as a Scorsese or a Spielberg or a Coppola or even a George Lucas but he's definitely worth seeking out. So I would say I did not waste my youth, and I would recommend Scarface. And I believe it's on Netflix and Amazon Prime, and they're not even paying us, Devlin. (laughs) (laughs) That's nuts. Crazy, yo. Yeah. Now I have a question for you. Oh, my God. What is the next episode, Devlin? What is your choice for the throwback series? I'm well, you know excited. what? I've got. I've been keeping a little list of late, and there's a couple in here that I just. There's a couple in here I really want to pull the trigger on, but I feel like week one we watched a film that I'd seen a lot. You had either not seen or had only seen a couple of times, or maybe. Are you going to split the difference because neither of us liked week one? Yeah. We both recommended we both... Scarface, and we're now going to watch a film that polarizes us to keep it interesting. Well, what I'm actually going to say is that I feel like we need to watch a film that had a huge influence on my childhood, and I'm all but certain had a massive influence on yours as well. It's about time that me and you properly talked about Predator 2. Oh, no. <laughs> Danny boy. <laughs> Uh, want some candy, Devlin? I okay, do want yeah. some candy. <laughs> um, I will tell you well, the story next time out. Um, oh no, no, you, you, you hold, keep that jism in your pants. <laughs> um, 
but but me right. me and Predator two Predator me and Predator two have got a long history. So uh... Devlin, I'm too old for this shit. <laughs> <laughs> you get Danny Glover doing Predator two. Yeah. Wow. Okay. You know what? Uh, more than happy. I can't think of the last time I saw it. I think I tried. You know what? I tried to watch it with my girlfriend last year. Got five minutes in. Really? She was. Yeah, she's a big Predator yeah. fan, but she did not like Predator Two, so I didn't watch it. I remember. I've but, seen uh, this film with you. We will again. We'll talk about this next time. But I've seen. Oh this film. wow! We have watched yeah. this together. Yeah. Well, Gally, first you get the sugar, then you get the power, then you get the women. Good night. Well, I don't think I can top that. I'll say good night, listeners, and we'll see you next time in the urban jungle that is LA for for (laughs) Predator. Welcome to the not-too-distant future. Laser guns. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. I've got a quick favor to ask. If you enjoyed the podcast, could you rate it, maybe even leave a review? We'd really appreciate it. Also, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the films that we review. So send us a message on Twitter. Finally, for all other information about the Rewind Movie Podcast, check out the website, rewindmoviecast.com. Once again, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast.